Hello and welcome. This is episode 74 of the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey and today we are looking around corners to create early warning scenarios with Columbia Business School's Rita McGrath. The Business of Software Podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. This is Rita's fourth time on the Boss Podcast, having featured in 2018 and then twice in the 2020s. Have a listen to episodes 35 and 52 for some of her amazing nuggets of wisdom. As ever, she brings another great insight into looking ahead of where you are and where your company is to foresee potential hazards. She is joined by Violet, a member of the Boss family, who tells of the trials and tribulations of studying from home at the start of the 2020 pandemic and the effect it has had on hers and her peers' focus and learning structure. Happy listening. So what I'm going to focus on here is one particular technique from the book, which I call the early warnings exercise. Um, And so, Mark, if you could do the next slide. Um, And this is really about how you pick up those weak signals that things are in the process of uh, changing. And so the first observation I would make is that when you're thinking about the information that you use to make decisions, there are always these three different kinds of indicators that you could be looking at. Most, unfortunately, indicators that we rely on in business are what I call lagging indicators. They're great information, but it's about something that's already happened. So if you think about your financial indicators, if you think about um, statistics about you know last year's sales or performance, or even as we're looking at the current macro and ec- economic environment, even employment, you know, it's, it's a lagging indicator. It's not telling you what's coming. Then we have the current indicators, and you can think of those sort of like the speedometer in your automobile. They tell you where you are. Um, And in business, that would be things like employee engagement and um, net promoter scores. They're, They're giving you a temperature read of what's happening right now. But the most important indicators from a future oriented point of view are also the most difficult. Uh, These are what I call leading indicators. And a leading indicator by definition is about something that hasn't happened yet. And so it's often qualitative. Um, people can very reasonably disagree about what message a leading indicator is creating. And interestingly enough, the best metric for a leading indicator is not did what it predicted happen, but did it evoke the right action in time? And I think, you know, we're in the midst of this uh, coronavirus crisis, and a lot of the public health people will tell you, well, if what we're doing is successful, the big answer will be nothing happened. Life didn't change, nothing took place. And once the crisis has passed us, everyone's gonna say, if nothing happened, well, you people overreacted, it was ridiculous, what you did was you know, way out of proportion to the risk, blah, blah, blah. And the public health people will tell you that's surprisingly a measure of success. The fact that nothing happened meant we took effective action in time. And so it's a very tricky thing, these leading indicators, uh, when you think about um, um, the, the sort of emotional response that human beings often have, because the most powerful of them, if they're really powerful and we act on them, uh, result in absolutely nothing dangerous or, <laughs> or otherwise happening. So they're kind of tricky from a human point of view. So Mark, if you can do the next one. 
so the early warnings model basically relates to a couple of um, activities that are different from one another. So the first thing is how good is the information that you have to work with over time? And in the early, early stages, when things are first starting to make themselves known, the signals are very, very weak. And they remain that way for quite a while. And then you have a period of inflection where the signals get stronger and stronger and stronger until you finally have facts, right? And the signal is very, very strong. You've got facts. You can take photographs. You, you know what the answer is. And if you do the next slide, Mark, the problem is that your ability to change those facts is inversely related to the strength of the signal that you have to work with. Uh, so your degrees of strategic freedom descend even as the quality of the information that you have to work with improves. And this is one of the fundamental sort of challenges of strategy, which is by the time you have the information you would really like to have had to make the decisions you need to make, uh, it's too late. And so the question is, how do we go from that red line? Um, how do we work backward in time? Now, this is kind of a critical issue because you don't want to be making decisions too early when the signal to noise ratio is too extreme, but you also don't want to leave it too late. So somewhere in the middle of that chart is a period of what I'll call optimal warning, which is it's not too early. So we're not just acting on anything that's in the atmosphere, but it's also not too late. So the way that we do this, um, if you do the next slide, Mark, is we establish what I call a time zero event, which you can almost think of it as a headline from the future. And it says, this is the thing that we're thinking about happening in the future. Um, and so these are some examples about artificial intelligent chatbots. Many of you will be familiar with this, where you know you call up a retail establishment and you're not actually talking to a person, you're talking to a robot who's been trained very carefully to have it be almost like a person, or augmented reality in retail, or um, alternatives to screens for web encounters, or algorithms in the workplace. And these are all sort of examples of something which, if you catch it right, could take your business to new heights. If you miss it, it could take your business into irrelevancy. Um, so the question, of course, comes then, um, so what you do with a time zero event is you articulate it, and then what you do is work backward in time. And you ask the question, well, before that could happen, what are the indicators we would have to be able to see that would tell us this is becoming more or less likely? And what you then do is you appoint someone whose job it is to watch those indicators. So as the indicators pile up, you can see your time zero event either becoming more likely or less likely. And, and I think it's a very interesting way of saying, okay, rather than doing elaborate scenario planning or whatnot, um, how do we think about very simply gathering the information we might want to tell us whether this is becoming more or less likely to happen? So if you could do the next slide, Mark. So uh, the next question you're going to ask me, of course, is, well, how do you go about establishing a time zero event? <laughs> and so I have a very simple technique to do this, and my hope is after this uh, session, everyone who's here will be able to do this for themselves. So it's really a capability building kind of exercise. So what I suggest is pick two uncertainties, two things which are not yet known, and assign different values to each of them. So a high or a low value, or maybe this will happen, or maybe it won't value. 
And then you're going to get a two by two matrix. So very simple, four possible futures. And what I'm going to ask you to do then is tell a story about each of those possible future situations. Um, and what might that world look like, you know? And um, for this exercise, I'm going to do this in real time. So this is absolutely terrifying uh, because I know you're recording this, Mark, and two years from now, people may look back and say, oh boy, that McGrath, what an idiot, you know, but bear with me. We'll do it in real time and we'll see how, how well we do. And this is actually, this is the very first time I'm presenting this, everybody, because I just designed it last week. <laughs> so <laughs> bear but with me. Don't feel bad, Rita. This is really the very first time we've done this too. So... <laughs> So the uncertainties I'm going to pick are, um, you know, we've, we've for many, many years now, for about 40 years, been dealing with this so-called maximizing shareholder value uh, premise as the underpinning of what should drive uh, private corporations, what should drive especially publicly traded corporations in their decision making and in their behavior. And it's a line of reasoning that I guess most famously began with Milton Friedman back in the 70s. It was cast into being in a policy sense, perhaps by the Reagan administration. And what we've seen is the rolling back of many of the post-World War II provisions that were put into place to basically try to create peaceful, prosperous times for everybody. So very limited roles for banks, very strict rules about things like buybacks, um, companies were entrusted with leading for the long term. Uh, employers were wedded to their communities. You know, there was considered to be a really important community-based, workforce-based role for corporations. And a whole, you know, that whole bundle of things, which over the intervening years has gradually been picked at and picked at and picked at, um, mostly for profit motives. So you've seen the financialization of um, most sectors of the economy. You've seen enormous wealth inequality uh, as the, you know, the folks at the top have been able to really maximize their returns and everybody else has you know, been, been struggling um, and, 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 and. So the big first uncertainty that I think we're up against, and I think we may be at a really interesting inflection point with this, is will this philosophy of maximizing shareholder value continue to dominate the way corporate, especially corporate resource allocation decisions are made, or are we going to see a pulling back from that? We're to the point where we'll have um, you know, more of what's called stakeholder capitalism takeover, where there's kind of a return to this notion of corporations are, are meant to, the, 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 you know, the value they create is meant to be shared more broadly, so more shared prosperity. So that's the first uncertainty. And the second uncertainty is, of course, what's on everybody's mind, which is what happens next. You know, what happens when the immediate crisis has washed over us and business that's been stopped in its tracks um, kind of restarts, is that going to be you know, bouncing back, or are we going to be in a situation of, you know, recession or worse, even depression? So those are the two uncertainties that I'm going to use just for this illustrative example. So if you could do the next one, Mark. Okay, so we've got shareholder value prevails stake versus stakeholder capitalism. And on the left-hand side, we've got a prolonged global slowdown versus the economy kind of bouncing back. Um, so I'll take each of these scenarios in turn, and you can see how you know, they're, they're different futures, right? So let's start with the upper left side. So shareholder value continues to have its grip on the way decisions get made and the world is just in a slow 
slow growth or zero growth or deflationary uh, sector, which is not happy. And I've sort of named this scenario, Les Miserables. Um, you're going to continue to have poverty and inequality pervasively distributed. Um, most people are going to feel economically insecure. Um, and we'll continue this trend we've been seeing in the last few years of political instability. And I think we're going to add to that a layer of competition for resources that we haven't really seen before. So that's, that's one scenario. Um, if I move sort of south on this chart here, let's say the economy bounces back, but we've still got this maximizing shareholder value mindset. I think that's kind of situation as was before. It's going to be um, you know, middle and lower classes continuing to struggle. Um, high levels of inequality remain. We're still going to see you know, CEO to worker pay ratios that are very difficult to digest and so forth. Now, let's say we use this crisis or, or the world uses this crisis to really reset the way incentives in the capitalist system are allocated and we move to much more of a stakeholder capitalism. Um, but the world is going to be in a tough place for a while. Um, and what I think we'll expect to see there is um, a lot more grassroots organizing and activism, as we've seen already. Uh, we'll see calls across the board for expanded safety net programs. In fact, we're already seeing evidence that that's happening. Um, we will see greater taxation. We might even see appropriation of wealth, as uh, Nick Hanauer, who's a very wealthy guy, but also a pitchfork <laughs> proponent. He's a venture capitalist who basically says, look, this wealth inequality thing is a terrible idea. Um, he says, look, the money's all there. It's just sitting in offshore bank accounts. Go get it. <laughs> you know? And that's real pitchfork, right? Thinking. Um, we'll see lots of alliances between NGOs, uh, new government actors, and we'll see definitely a renewed role for government in, in the way the economy is managed. And let's say we have stakeholder capitalism in the economy does come back. Um, I think what we'll see there is um, with renewed prosperity, we'll see a return to more of the post-World War II consensus on the distribution of societal wealth. Uh, we'll see, I think, a gradual narrowing of inequality. And we'll see a lot of social goods that are made more affordable. So things like um, education, the healthcare, um, those kinds of things, you know, there'll be a recognition that those, those things are what allow people to have the hope of a more prosperous life and that they'll start to become more um, affordable. So just to recap, so what you're looking for here is this ability to say, well, before the time zero is upon us, how would we make a decision? So we've articulated a couple of future scenarios. And what we're hunting for now is the time zero event. What's the headline? What's the, the thing that is a reality that we might want to be preparing for? So if you could do the next slide, Mark. Um, so what I pulled, uh, and this is, as I said, we're kind of working in real time here. Um, what I pulled is actual headlines from possible different scenarios, um, where the first is uh, a headline that economic inequality leads to collapse, which is the likely outcome of this first scenario, the maximizing shareholder value, but global slowdown. Uh, the second one, um, you know, the economy comes back, but the share, the gains to that that growth are privately held in a few hands. There, I think what you're gonna have is um, extreme poverty returns to America. And it's something most of us in most of our lifetimes have not experienced. Um, you know, it was the depression and the second world war really helped to eliminate a lot of the desperate poverty that had been there before, but you know, it could be back. In the right-hand side, we've got um, 
you know, I, I call on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who made a very famous speech in 1938, talking about um, governmental experimentation, saying, you know, we have a rendezvous with destiny. We're going to have to learn about how all this is working in a brand new way. And um, they, he talked about uh, very explicitly about taking control of the economy away from what he called uh, tyranny, that, that the private sector and a few wealthy people were controlling so much of the means of production that it was depriving ordinary people of the means for well-being. Um, and he was very explicit about it, even back in the 30s. And then, um, you know, if, if things are good and we have this more broadly shared prosperity, we might see a return to uh, the Great Society, you know, version 2.0. So with those things in front of us, what, what we can then do is say, well, what would be some indicators that these scenarios are coming more or less likely? So I'll pick the one I think is most likely, which is a prolonged global slowdown, if not a shrinkage. Uh, and I think we're kind of at the end of maximizing shareholder value. Uh, I think we are maybe at the brink of a return to stakeholder capitalism. So Mark, if you could do the next one. Um, and uh, we can start to then think about what are some of those future oriented states. And by the way, I don't think that's an awful scenario. I think we could be discovering and uh, learning an awful lot. So, um, given that, right, I think there are a lot of uh, bright notes. You know, if you think about what are some of the good things that can come out of this uh, change? I mean, I'm looking at things like, uh, my God, there are, there, there are clean canals in Venice. There's dolphins swimming around in Venice. You can noticeably tell the, the quality of the air and the water and the land are, are, um, are, are improving. Um, and uh, things like uh, men are, uh, are learning what it's like to try to do anything with um, you know, children at home. So, um, uh, as we look into the future and as we think about let's be optimistic and let's think about the people that are going to be creating the future for us i'm going to borrow a line from um william henry gibson many of you will be familiar with him he's a science fiction writer and he was uh, famous for saying you know the future is already here it just hasn't been evenly distributed yet um and so here's an interesting thing if you want to know what the 20 year olds of 10 years from now are going to be doing and thinking and, and learning uh guess what they're all alive and well and they're all 10 years old today uh and so um i'd love to hear um mark from uh, someone coming to visit us from the future <laughs> who's going to share with us some of her ideas well i wish <laughs> <laughs> I wish she was only 10. She's a little bit older now, but uh, this is, uh, I'd like you to, uh, to meet Violet, um, who uh, came to Boston when she was 10. She's always been a big fan of uh, business of software and all the things that go around it, apart from uh, me. Um, she uh, is working at home at the moment. So uh, do you want to say hello, Violet? Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Hello, Violet. Um, so, Rita, I, I would love you to uh, just say hi to Violet. And uh, she has been at home for uh, pretty much a week and has been getting up to speed on online uh, learning. So uh, I think it's got some really interesting observations about uh, how that's going. Uh, it goes pretty much without saying um, that in uh, today's uh, in today's uh, environment, uh, there isn't a hugely well-funded education system. So, um, I really, really sympathise with schools who are having to 
uh, manage children, have them in for uh, lessons every day, and also thinking about the implications of things uh, going online. But uh, I think we can learn uh, a few things maybe about uh, the, the, the experience there, but also then uh, maybe even think about some of the opportunities that people might have to uh, make that experience better. Violet, tell us about what you're doing. Um, well, so far the different lessons, all of the different teachers have a, a different way of doing things, um, which is kind of frustrating. We, the, the school, my school specifically, has chosen to use Microsoft Teams as the main place where they're coordinating things because we use Microsoft and SharePoint and those kind of sites. Um, but along with that, there's loads and loads of other websites that are specific to each of the teachers. So there's not a sort of standardized way that they've done it yet. Um, I've had a few video call lessons which have been disastrous really so far. The, the teacher, I had one this morning with my um, psychology teacher and his keyboard started uh, randomly typing different uh, symbols and letters and stuff so he had to cancel the call and then he had to go and take another call during it and then he had to go and take care of his kids so it was it was a little bit um, disjointed. Uh, yes that is Violet's Lemmy calendar. <clears throat> <laughs> Um, so, can you just just ask, because you were talking to me about this last last week a little bit, um, some of the lessons that you've got, you have a teacher who's giving classes and they're broadcast out and you all have to follow along. Tell us how you're watching them and how you as pupils are, are, are consuming those lessons. Um, well, I think it's kind of, uh, the, the general format that they seem to be following, or some of them seem to be forming it, uh, following is there's a, a PowerPoint and the uh, teacher will screen record and, and share the screen and then they'll talk over it with voice and then we're all uh, muted and no video chat. Um, and we're supposed to be following along as, as if it's a normal lesson, but what I've noticed is the class sizes have halved basically and I don't, and that's not because of illness, because we have, um, we have separate group chats without the teachers on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, all, you know, all of those. So, it, and people are saying, I'm just not going to come in. So I've noticed that a lot of people, I think, have just decided not to come in because it doesn't count against your attendance. And they've just, I think it comes down to a motivation and discipline and they're just not, they're just deciding not to take part anymore. Which I think is the kind of, the, the, the dangerous thing about the, the online learning is that it really comes down to whether you're motivated enough and if you care enough to keep up with your lessons, otherwise it can really easily get on top of you and then you just won't have the motivation to continue and then your education is going to suffer. So uh, I agree and I think that's something that we've touched on in a few, few of the talks today um, around you know, remote working and how you control people, manage people, build trust, et cetera, et cetera. Um, tell me a little bit about the different channels that you've got going on whilst the lesson is happening. Um, well, uh, in my English lesson, for example, today, um, what we have is on Microsoft Teams, there's like three or four different chat channels. Um, and you have to sort of, and the teachers will post on all of them at the same time, different things to do with the same lesson and you sort of have to switch between. And then they have a shared class notebook, which nobody could figure out how to use 
let alone the teacher. But at the same time, what's been helpful actually is um, using FaceTime separate of the teacher and FaceTiming some of the people that are in my class. And then we've kind of, it's, it's sort of helpful because you can figure out what's happening together and you can discuss ideas. But it's at the same time uh, distracting, obviously, because they're your friends. But I think it would be really, really quite difficult to navigate the new the new software that we're using because it's all it's not very um polished i don't think at the moment especially with the mm. teachers the way they're using it yeah i would say that's from my observations that's that would be fair but one thing i have noticed though is that in a traditional classroom people are very tied to a particular speed of learning so you have a teacher at the front and they're talking and stuff goes in and they say things and if one or two people don't get a concept the teacher then if they're a good teacher has to go back and help those people through it but um what i was uh, you know observing with uh, observing with you and eddie was actually some of those explanations going on as a back channel um while the while the class is going on so some of the people that have got those things are actually explaining uh, ideas to to people who are struggling with them and maybe that's a maybe that's a kind of a positive piece to that yeah i mean definitely when we're um when we're video chatting with people in my class it's helpful to talk talk through things that people don't understand um but and, and like you said it's when you when you I think when, when you self-teach yourself something with certain subjects and with certain concepts, it's much easier to teach yourself um, than when you're in a class with other people who are learning at different rates. So I found in some classes, in some lessons, it's been so much faster and I've been able to do an hour lesson in 25, 30 minutes and retain the same amount of information, if not more than a normal lesson. But with some, uh, some lessons, I just don't think that they translate as well, especially with biology. There's a lot of practicals that we should be doing right now this week and next week and all of that. There's required practicals that we have to do that are really difficult to teach and virtually, and it's really difficult to, and there's a lot of concepts that are difficult to teach yourself. So I found with certain lessons, it's, it's so much easier and so much more helpful to be online and teach yourself that. But with other lessons, it's really uh, damaging almost to, mm the understanding what uh, so what subjects are you doing just briefly um so i'm doing a levels i'm doing english literature maths uh psychology and biology and of those subjects which are the ones that lend themselves best um i think psychology is the easiest to do online uh plus since uh, for about a month since half term uh, one of my teachers has been self-isolating because she returned from Italy. So we've been having to teach ourselves lessons and I've just, it, it's a lot easier and it's a lot quicker than normal lessons. Um, so psychology is translated well because they have a really good system in place already, I've found. So the, the, the subjects which have had the best systems, the most, with the fewest extra websites, I found have translated so much better. Um, maths I found is is okay because it's just all centered around this one textbook um, but I think English has suffered quite a lot because the whole thing of English the lessons that they teach are they're very um, they're very organic and it happens in the class discussion and that's really difficult because 
to, to replicate in uh, Microsoft Teams because the school hasn't allowed the teachers to allow us to turn our microphones on and turn our video calls on. Um, so we, we can't have that same discussion. So I think things like that more, um, I think more arts-based subjects are gonna suffer a lot. I have friends who are doing uh, art and drama and especially my friends who are doing drama, they're really, really suffering because you really you can't really do drama through video chat. But um, STEM-based subjects, I think, are, they've translated really well because it's a lot of uh, just facts that you have to learn, especially with biology. It's mm. just a lot of memorization. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything that you've observed today? Because I know you've been at school and you've been doing classes, but uh, you've also been sneaking into uh, this um, and uh, taking part. Are there any things that we've been doing today or any, any, of, the, any of the things that, that uh, are things that would help or be useful in, a, in an educational environment? Um, well, I think in terms of the format of the conference that you've got, how you have the, the hall room and then the, the hallway and then the auditorium room and the hallway is more for socializing from what I've gathered I think that could be kind of an interesting thing that the school could bring in because I think one of the dangers to the, the the fact that my school all schools and the college has gone online is not only the the danger of purchase to education but the danger to your your well-being because a lot of people that I know the only way that they interact with people is through school and the danger is that a lot of people I know are, are becoming quite isolated and not talking to anybody so I think if the school could some way in some way use Microsoft Teams or the the Hills website or something to introduce some more social aspects so that people can get a bit more uh, connection with others and that would be good just like you've been doing in the, the hallway in the breakout rooms. No good uh, it's not like you're expecting any pocket money this week um, <laughs> So, Rita, right, you love the idea that learning can be made more democratic. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Can you talk a little bit? Sure. So, um, in many um, Western uh, societies, and I think in others as well, um, the, the, the degree, the credential that you receive from a course of learning uh, has come to be a critically important gating factor in access to opportunities and all kinds of other things. Um, well, if you could imagine the kind of system that we're beginning to experiment with now because we have no choice, um, you've now got the ability to say, to, to tell, because it's online and it's digitally intermediated, to tell what people know, uh, what experience they've had, what they've learned, what their capability is. And so you've now for real got the potential to have a skill assessment that's not... Um, uh, represented by a degree. Because right now, you know, a lot of jobs, and this has been researched as well, a lot of um, jobs require some kind of college degree or, or university degree. And the reality is the degree isn't necessary to do those jobs. The degree simply means you showed up somewhere for three or four years, you handed in your coursework, you didn't fall asleep at your desk every day. Uh, you know, you, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, a symbol for other things that employers care about. So if we could move toward a world where you can actually tell what a person knows and what they're capable of doing, it vastly expands the pool of human talent that we could begin to tap into. And it vastly democratizes the idea of learning and capability development. So 
I think that's really good news. I, I really do. I mean, a lot of people are getting degrees that are basically not very useful. Not that I think, you know, learning has to always be tied to usefulness, but, you know, a lot of people are being cut off from opportunities that they, if they didn't, if, if they had more money, if they had more time, if they were born into the right social setting, uh, they could perfectly well take advantage of. But because of the way we've structured our system of credentialing right now that they can't. Yes, thank you. Um, right, uh, Violet, thank you very much for um, coming in. I know you're not going to run away, but... Uh, yeah. Thank um, you. Nice, nice to hear uh, it uh, right, right from the uh, source, as it were. Yeah, um, so there were a couple of comments. Uh, Nils, uh, you were saying that uh, at least here in Germany, schools are closed and teachers have been asked to provide online resources. Um, same here. They're just not geared up for it. And I think there's a whole... You know, what happens in theory and what happens in practice are two very different, uh, two very different things. I think we've been struggling. Um, the education system has been struggling because this is one of these things that people know have been coming. Maybe uh, one of the reasons that it's been we've been so slow to close schools here is that you know there's just this clear understanding that we can't teach online in a way that we'd we'd like to. So um, I'd love um, Nils or any of the other people from other countries to sort of share any thoughts on you know, different different ways of doing that. I know, Paldi, you were saying earlier that uh, pretty much all of your coursework uh, is online for, for um, in, in Italy. So it'd be, be very, uh, very interesting to, to hear about that. Um, shall we go back to your uh, your talk and have a conclusion because what the other thing I'd love to do here is just um, to to round this up um, is let's finish that and then I think there are some there are some very interesting opportunities that are going to come out of what's going on I think the opportunities for online education for all sorts of things around that are huge and there are probably companies who are here today who are watching that and going okay those are those are things that we can we can help with but I'd also love to kind of just have a think about some of the other positive things mm -hmm. that have come out of uh, where we are and, and what's been going on over the last few weeks and that's maybe a good way to, to finish up the day so uh, do I need to share my screen again I'm gonna assume I do so there we are. There's a right. cute so you can child. do the next that one. Look, that looks like a cute and compliant child. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> well, the reason I know about her um, is that she's she's British. Uh, she lives in a single um, parent home with her with her father, and her particular hobby is she's called Trinity, and her hobby is playing with these loom bands. You know, you can see them in the picture. Um, and what she would do is every day after school, she'd come home and presumably do her homework, and then she would spend the rest of her time, her free time, on her phone, exchanging information with other loom band aficionados and they would learn from each other. She'd play the videos, she'd stop them, she'd start them and so forth. Now, why would I know about this person? Well, um, the Wi-Fi at her home went out. And so there she was, hours and hours and hours of video. And we all know what bandwidth that takes, but doing it on the cellular network 
So imagine her father's astonishment at the end of the month when he got a bill from Vodafone for something like 1,600 pounds. Um, and you know, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a, 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 a calamity for them. And I think they came to an agreement eventually. But um, why I thought this was so interesting was if you think about Trinity, and she's 10, right? Um, you know, what's her world gonna look like? I mean, and you know, you think about how she's gonna learn. Well, it's gonna be real time, online, peer, peer to peer, you know, from other people that know. And you've already alluded to that in the idea that the students that are falling behind can be helped by the students that are grasping the material sort of in parallel with whatever's going on that the teacher's driving. Uh, she expects to be connected, like it wouldn't have occurred to her to check the Wi-Fi, right? <laughs> um, and she's doing a lot of participating herself in the learning. So she's creating videos to share with other people, even as she's learning from the videos created for her. So if you think about the world Trinity's gonna be in 10 years from now when she's 20, right? It's a completely different world than the one that many of us grew up with. You know, it's not gonna be some expert mediating. It's gonna be very much distributed and peer to peer. Um, it's not going to be something that depends on a credential. Again, it's going to be show me what you can do, right? Um, so a very different world than the one that we um, are living in uh, today. So I think she's an interesting little example of visiting the future. So I'll conclude my formal remarks uh, by saying that, um, you know, when I first started in the field of strategy, we had a number of fundamental assumptions. Uh, one was that industries were what mattered. And uh, that, so we had a mountain of research on things like you know, industry positioning, and order of entry analysis, and five forces and all that stuff. Um, and innovation, those of us studying innovation, we were kind of huddled in the corner for warmth. I mean, it was not very pleasant. Um, and what I think is happening today as competitive advantages have gotten shorter is that you can't really talk about strategy today without talking about innovation and equally you can't really talk about innovation without some reference to digital with what the conference here is doing and and i've said this before about boss and i'll say it again um one of the reasons i'm so fascinated by this conference and by the people that come to it is it's my little version of where where is the future being created so that we could go visit it today and uh, i think that's what we're really seeing so these three things really coming together in a in a very remarkable way so that concludes my formal remarks i'm willing to answer questions um, and you can easily reach me uh readamagraph.com i publish a monthly newsletter which is like what you heard about um with the, uh, the the two by two, you know, the, and I, I do it every month for a different sector. So you're welcome to uh, sign up, it's free. Um, so I guess final thoughts here. Um, and I guess you can run through those, Mark. So, you know, inflection points don't happen instantly. They, they take a while, right? Your past success can actually create blind spots. So that's one of the reasons I like the two by two to sort of expand your um, um, aperture of what you're looking at. Uh, most of us work with lagging indicators. It's much harder to get those leading indicators to try to see what's coming. I mean, who predicted this? You know, even even three months ago, life was going on as normal, right? Who predicted this? Um, the idea that the strength of a signal is inversely related, inversely related to the ability to change it. Um, that we've got, um, you know, it's not really so much about prediction, like the best predictions often predict something that doesn't happen and that's success. Uh, and then finally, um, the last one would be that, um, oh, that if you, if you have a systematic approach, you can often pick up these early warnings sooner than if, um, if, if, if you don't. So I'll leave you with those thoughts and uh, thank you, Mark, for bringing me into this conference. I just want to interject briefly to ask you listeners out there a question. 
Have you found your sales team unable to land that sale even after a demo? In our upcoming Boss Masterclass, Jobs to be Done expert Bob Mesta will go through the stages of demand-side sales and how you need to understand which aspect of your product is the right one to sell depending on the customer and the customer's needs. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org events and watch out for new masterclasses coming soon. Now, back to Rita. Well, I'll make one observation while mm. people are thinking, um, which is that, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is an outcome of you know, decades, really, of building supply chains and our other vital infrastructure systems without re- real regard to how resilient they are. So mm. we've optimized, 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 and each individual player has maximized their individual utility and no one's really taken a systems orientation to it and um, I've written a lot about this over the years but when we're trying to create resilient systems there are a few key design principles that we've been basically ignoring so the first one is redundancy you know if one part of a system goes down uh, you don't want the entire system to be crippled you want multiple um, opportunities to you know for something to take over when something else goes down. The second is what I'll call tripwires or or blockages. Right, you you want you want to find out something's going wrong as early as you possibly can, and alert the response capability that you have. And the the third thing uh, that you want is slack. You know you need slack in the system, and you need to be able to close off part of the system without the whole system imploding. And these are just very basic design principles mm. for building resilient systems. And we know this. You know we know this from the military. We know this from our space programs. We know this from um, uh, you know the way that the systems that have to work. You know life life threatening systems are built. And yet when we look at um, the way our supply chains have been constructed, when we look at um, you know, how companies are understanding what's happening, I was talking to a firm just the other day. And they had done what they thought was a very rigorous supply chain audit to see you know, how vulnerable they were to gaps. And they went down about six layers. And what they're now learning is they would have needed to go down something like 30 layers to really get down to the guy that's producing the stuff that comes out of the dirt that's like 1.111% of the end product. But it's absolutely critical. If that commodity isn't available, the entire rest of the chain doesn't work. And I think we're starting to see now uh, a real appreciation um, for you know the need to budget for resiliency, which we haven't done. You know, our, our, our incentive systems don't really reward that. Yeah. So great, uh, great question from uh, Stephen Keller. <clears throat> uh, how does capitalism prioritize resilience when there's no obvious ROI? Well, no, I think the problem is pricing, right? Um, and my really good friend, Rebecca Henderson, has a wonderful book coming out, which I'm going to encourage everybody to uh, pre-order, pre-order it. That's what she's looking for at the moment. And it's called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And what she argues is that part of the problem, the way we've constructed capitalist systems is that we don't adequately price for social externalities. So we don't, water, for example, the world over is not priced relative to its importance or its, its, its criticality. Um, we don't price for air, we don't price for pollution, we don't price for carbon, we don't price. And so you've got individuals who are able to take what are essentially public goods, convert them into their own benefit and exploit those resources when really it's all of us that are bearing that that cost 
Uh, you can think of the same thing in terms of societies in the form of what some people call social pollution. And so, you know, for example, right now you've got companies that don't offer their workers paid sick leave. And uh, there's a report that just came out in the US that says, you know, one in four um, food service workers in the United States have gone to work when they have been so ill, they've been either vomiting or exhibiting other pretty disgusting bodily symptoms because they can't afford to miss the paycheck. Well, that's a form of social pollution, right? You, you, you know, you have an externality that all of us are bearing. It's a risk all of us are going to bear mm -hmm. because this one company doesn't want to pay one person for one day off. You know, and um, and I just think we we don't price those things appropriately. Now, interestingly, if you go back to um, America in the, I'll say the 60s and 70s, when the first wave of real environmental legislation came in, right, how did they, how did they make that stick? They made it stick by adding a pricing mechanism. So, you know, you had government regulation about, about how much particulate matter you could have in automobile exhaust and voila, the car makers figured it out. So capitalism is based on markets and markets only work if there's a pricing mechanism. So we have to figure out the pricing. Um, and if you adequately reflected the price of having non-resilient systems into the way things were built, I guarantee you, you'd have much more resilient systems. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm, I'm actually a real optimist. I think this is going to be a tremendous unfreezing. It's going to mm. be a real wake-up call for a lot of people. And I think it's going to start making connections in people's minds to things that they never saw as connected before. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.